As we begin the message, let me just pose a somewhat hypothetical question to you, but not altogether hypothetical. It is this. How would you like to read a book by someone who, as a very young man, personally walked and talked with Jesus for over three years, then continued to live for the Lord Jesus for another 50 to 60 years? Wouldn't it be exhilarating to read a book by that man? Well, as you know, we can. Because he wrote five books that are still in print today, and one of them is the book we come to in this message. It is called in our Bibles, The Gospel According to John. The great Greek scholar Dr. A.T. Robertson called the Gospel of John, quote, the profoundest book in the world. G. Campbell Morgan said, quote, there is a common and justifiable consciousness that in the gospel according to John, we arrive at an ultimate unveiling. John Calvin put it this way in comparing the three other three gospels to John, quote, since they all had the same object, that is to show us Christ, the first three exhibit his body, but John shows us his soul, end quote. That's the character of the Gospel of John. Not implying that it is more inspired than Matthew, Mark, Luke, more important than Matthew, Mark, Luke, but there is clearly, as we will learn in this message, a uniqueness to this book. There is something for everyone in John's Gospel. According to Dr. Warren Wearsby, quote, the Gospel of John is simple enough for a child to wade in, but deep enough for the scholar and the most seasoned saint to swim in. John did not simply write a book. He painted exciting pictures. The author of this book is the beloved apostle John. John was the son of Zebedee. His mother's name was Salome, who may have been the the sister of Mary. If that was the case, then that would mean John was the cousin of Jesus. We can't be dogmatic on that, however, because names without last names and so forth, we're not always sure to whom a a reference is made, etc., sometimes. But we do know that John had at least one brother whose name was James. James and John were both fishermen and evidently partners with Peter and his brother, Andrew. To give you an idea of the kind of person John was, turn with me to begin with to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, before we look at the Gospel of John. Mark, chapter 3. We'll do a brief character sketch of the author of the Gospel of John. We've done this in the past just to familiarize ourselves with the human author. Mark chapter 3, verse 13. It says, Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Then he appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that they might send, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have power to heal sicknesses, and to cast out demons. Here are the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom Jesus gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Jesus gave John, along with his brother, the nickname Son of Thunder. That obviously means that John was a fervent, ambitious, aggressive, charged-up kind of guy. He was a thunderous man. That was his personality. 
And I stress this often when talking about John because so many people view John because they know he eventually became the apostle of love. So many people view John as a weak, mild sissy. They view him as a, you know, a hippie sort of guy with really long hair, psychedelic shirt, big, you know, big uh, peace sign hanging around his neck, going around with his fingers in the air saying, love one another, man, love one another. If that's the way you picture John, you've missed it. That's not John. John was a son of thunder. In fact, look with me at the next gospel, Luke chapter 9. <clears throat> Luke 9, verse 51. Now it came to pass when the time had come for Jesus to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, namely James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Now that's good, isn't it? Lord, should we just burn them up? It's obvious James and John didn't have missionary hearts. Jesus rebuked them for being hateful and intolerant. Verse 55, he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. At this point in his life, John had a lot of zeal, but no sensitivity. Zeal is a good quality, a very important quality in the Christian life, but it has to be balanced with sensitivity. But this gives us some insight into John's character, his personality. He was very aggressive. He was very ambitious. Let me show you another example. Go back to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 20. <clears throat> Matthew, chapter 20. Verse 20. Then the, mo the mother of Zebedee's sons, this would be the mother of James and John, the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom. Now before we go, before we go any further, it is abundantly clear, without any doubt, that James and John were behind this. We know that for three reasons. One, the text tells us they came along with their mother. Now, these are grown men. They wouldn't come along with their mother if this was just something, her idea, she didn't, and they didn't know anything about it. But secondly, the other ten disciples, as this story unfolds, get angry at James and John, not Mrs. Zebedee. They knew who was behind this. And most important of all, thirdly, Jesus gave his reply to James and John, not their mother. Jesus knew who was behind this. James and John were behind this request. And this shows us again that, J that J James and John, now we're specifically thinking of John, John was an ambitious man. But notice the response of Jesus, verse 22. <clears throat> Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Now remember, he's addressing James and John. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. 
And when the ten heard this, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This passage again points out the ambition of John. He was a goal-oriented man. Here we see he wanted to reach the top. He wanted to sit on the right hand or the left hand of authority in the kingdom. And the Lord told him that the way to the throne is the way of the cross. He wanted a crown. Jesus gave him a cup, a cup of suffering. He wanted power. Jesus gave him servanthood. He wanted to rule, and Jesus gave him a martyr's death. He gave his brother a martyr's death and gave him suffering almost unto martyrdom. The Lord Jesus took this thunderous, ambitious, aggressive man named John and redirected his zeal towards servanthood and ministry. Jesus transformed John into the apostle of love. It's really something to realize that when the Lord was passing out work near the end of his earthly stay, you remember he told Peter, feed my sheep? But he told John, take care of my mother. That ought to show just how much Jesus trusted John. That passage, by the way, is John 19. Look at John chapter 19, verse 25. We pick up the story with Jesus hanging on the cross. John 19, verse 25, says, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour that disciple took her to his own home. By the way, because so many people misread this passage, let me just emphasize, Jesus was not saying when he said, woman, behold your son, he wasn't saying, mom, look at me, look at what they're doing to me. He was referring to John. He was saying, behold your son, here is your new son. This man will be a son to you and take care of you. But notice how John refers to himself here in verse 26. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. All the way through this gospel, he refers to himself this way. It's almost as if John could never get over the fact that Jesus loved him so much. Therefore, he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. John was somewhere between the age of 20 and 23, the best I can calculate. Maybe even younger, maybe late teens when he he was called by Jesus to be an, an apostle. What a thrill it must have been for him as at such a young age, to follow Jesus around for three years, over three years. And during that time, Jesus transformed his life. John would no longer be content with being a fisherman, although that provided a a, a medium to uh, upper income for people in that day. He would no longer be content with being a fisherman. He gave his life to the cause of Christ. He ended up becoming a teammate in the ministry with the Apostle Peter throughout the early chapters of the book of Acts. 
As I said, John was in his early 20s when Jesus called him, maybe even late teens. He was in his 80s, maybe as old as 90 when he wrote this gospel. Now consider this. For 60 years, John thought about and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. And then one day the Spirit of God instructed him to pick up his pen. And John was given the tremendous privilege of writing 21 chapters on the glory of the God-man Jesus Christ. God saw to it that those 21 chapters were recorded accurately and were preserved for you and me. It is called the Gospel of John. What an amazing gospel presentation it is. John's gospel is very unique in comparison with the other gospels. Listen to this quote. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic gospels. The Greek word synoptikos means seen together, and it is an appropriate description of these gospels because of their common viewpoint and similar characteristics, especially in contrast to John, the supplemental gospel, end quote. John's content differs in place, duration, communication, and style than the other three Gospels. Let me mention some specifics. The Synoptic Gospels restrict their coverage to about two years of Jesus' ministry, whereas John covers all three and a half years of the public ministry of Jesus. He is the only one to tell about the early ministry of Jesus. The Synoptic Gospels major on Jesus' ministry up in Galilee, but John majors on Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. The Synoptic Gospels are full of parables told by our Lord, but John records no parables in his Gospel. The Synoptic Gospels are more historical in their perspective, but John's Gospel is more theological in its perspective. John was the last Gospel written. So instead of discussing all the same events and issues presented in the other three Gospels, John covers events and discourses not found in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. That is why John has been called the supplemental Gospel. It is altogether different from the three synoptic Gospels. Some more specifics. In John's Gospel, there is no genealogy, no account of the birth of Jesus, no record of his baptism, no record of his temptations, no account of the transfiguration, no instances where Jesus confronted those who were demonized, no parables, and there is no record of the ascension of Jesus back to heaven. The other gospels start, they start tracing the ministry of Jesus after the ministry of John the baptizer, but John's gospel alone shows how those two ministries overlap. John's gospel is definitely unique. There are several events recorded in John that aren't recorded in any of the other three Gospels. Let me give you a few specifics. The first call of the disciples, that's chapter 1. The marriage feast at Cana in chapter 2. The story of Nicodemus in chapter 3. The encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well in chapter 4. The healing of the nobleman's son in chapter 4. The healing of the lame man at Bethesda Pool in chapter 5. The raising of Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11 the washing of the disciples' feet in chapter 13, Jesus' teaching on the Holy Spirit in chapters 14 and 16, Jesus' high priestly prayer in chapter 17, his trial before Annas in chapter 18, his trial, uh, the commission of John to care for Mary in chapter 19, the four soldiers who gambled for the seamless robe of Jesus, chapter 19, 
The piercing of Jesus' side by the Roman soldier, chapter 19. The restoration of Peter, chapter 21. And the prediction of Peter's death, chapter 21. All of those events are unique to the Gospel of John, and there are others that I haven't taken the time to list. John was a man who paid very close attention to details, and he included those details in his record. This is a, just a, a little point, but a fascinating one to me. He tells us how long it took to build the temple. He tells us there were six water pots at the wedding feast of Cana. He tells us that the loaves of bread brought to Jesus were barley loaves. He tells us that the disciples rode three to four miles before Jesus came to them walking on the water. And he tells us the exact weight of the spices used in the burial of Jesus. Details. That's why I said earlier that John didn't simply write down certain events. He painted pictures. It is in John that some of the other disciples really come alive for us. Only in John does Thomas speak. Not in Matthew, not in Mark, not in Luke. Only in John. Andrew's personality is revealed in John's gospel. Philip's character is revealed in John's gospel. And the hard heart of Judas is seen most clearly in John's gospel. John's gospel is indeed unique. He had a specific purpose in mind. So he included the specific events that would best accomplish his purpose. John tells us what his main purpose was and is in chapter 20. Look at chapter 20, verse 30. He says this, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John says here that his purpose was, is, to record certain acts of Jesus so that people would believe in Jesus. He wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ. He wants us to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And he wants us to enter into a relationship with the Lord Jesus, and as a result, we'll have life through his name. That's John's purpose, specifically stated. He centered his gospel, he centers his gospel around certain miracles in the life of Jesus, which he calls signs. And he says also here in his gospel that at the end of it, he says, you know, the very last verse, that if everything were recorded, I suppose that even the world itself cannot contain the books that would be written. There was so much that could have been said about Jesus, but when John sat down to write this gospel, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, he decided to pick seven unique events, signs, to record in his gospel, to, to make his gospel revolve around. And these, he, he came to the conclusion, these miracles of Jesus will point out who he really is. Jesus claimed to be the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, that is, the Christ. And Jesus also claimed to be equal with God. That's what the title Son of God means. It's a title of deity. When Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, he was claiming equality with God. So those are the two great claims Jesus makes throughout the Gospel of John. He claims to be the Christ, that is the Messiah of the Old Testament, and he claims to be equal with God. So John tells us here in chapter 20 that he records certain miraculous signs to validate those claims of Jesus. 
He presents these signs as evidence to all who will read this gospel, so we will believe. John wants us to believe. He uses the word believe or some form of the Greek word pistuo, the verb pistuo, to believe, pistis, faith. He uses some form of that word 98 times in his gospel. Think about that. 98 times he uses some form of the word believe. We believe Jesus is who he claimed to be, and therefore we willingly submit or surrender our lives to him. That's what John means when he talks about believing in Jesus. Both aspects must be present in genuine saving faith. The intellectual assent, that is believing the facts, believing the truth, and the volitional commitment, that is the commitment, the surrender to his lordship. So when John talks about believing in Jesus, he is talking about a relationship with him, a submission to him. To believe in Jesus means to have an ongoing relationship with Christ. That is what John wants for everyone who reads this gospel. He tells us that here in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. So the gospel of John revolves around seven miraculous signs Jesus performed in his earthly ministry. Of all the ones that John could have recorded, the multitudes, the thousands that he could have recorded, he chose seven. What are they? The changing of the water into wine in chapter 2. The healing of the nobleman's son in chapter 4. The, the, the uniqueness of that was that Jesus healed from a distance. He didn't go there, didn't touch, didn't speak. He healed from a distance. The healing of the lame man in chapter 5. Very unique event. Lame for such a length of time. And when he was healed, he didn't need to gain strength in his legs. Instant healing. The feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6, which was probably closer to 15,000, 20 maybe. The walking on the water in chapter 6. The healing of the blind man in chapter 9. And the raising of Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. Those are the seven signs John records in his gospel to point us to Jesus, to present to us Christ. As I said, they are meant to prove to us that the claims of Jesus are valid. You see, in John... The miracles of Jesus are not so much deeds of compassion. Now, certainly, he was immensely compassionate, and it was an exp- his, his miracles were expression of compassion. But in John, John wants us to see them as deeds that demonstrate the glory of the person of Jesus of Nazareth, so we'll believe in him. John's goal, then, is to get us to believe in, embrace, and follow the Lord Jesus. So throughout this gospel, John tells us about the Lord Jesus in a number of ways. Not only does he record these seven signs, but one of the other ways John does this is to give us passages in which Jesus speaks for himself, describing himself. It is John who gives us the great I am statements of Jesus. John records, as I said, seven signs to point us to Jesus And he records seven I am's to explain to us Jesus. In John 6.35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Bread, of course, being the staple, the foundational uh, food source in first century Israel. I am the bread of life. In John 8.12, Jesus said, I am 
the light of the world. In John 10, 7, Jesus said, I am the door of the sheep. In John 10, 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. In John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In John 15, 1, Jesus said, I am the true vine. These seven I am statements tremendously enhance our understanding of the God-man, Jesus Christ. So I'll say it again. John didn't simply write words. He painted pictures. He painted pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ. For instance, let me give you a picture that comes from each chapter of John's Gospel. A picture of Jesus that dominates these individual chapters of John's Gospel. In chapter 1, Jesus is presented as the image of God. In chapter 2, he is seen as the Son of Man. In chapter 3, he is the divine teacher. In chapter 4, he is the lover of the lost. In chapter 5, he is the great physician. In chapter 6, he is the bread of life. In chapter 7, he is the water of life. In chapter 8, he is the eternal God. In chapter 9, he is the light of the world. In chapter 10, he is the good shepherd. In chapter 11, he is the resurrection and the life. In chapter 12, he is the king of kings. In chapter 13, he is the humble servant. In chapter 14, he is the divine encourager. In chapter 15, he is the true vine. In chapter 16, he is the sender of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 17, he is the great intercessor. In chapter 18, he is the innocent criminal. In chapter 19, he is the perfect sacrifice. In chapter 20, he is the conqueror of death. And in chapter 21, he is the restorer of the wayward. Those are marvelous portraits of the Lord Jesus Christ from the pen of the Apostle John. In addition to all of this, John gives us a wonderful presentation of both the humanity and the deity of Jesus. Though John concentrates more on the deity of Christ than on his humanity, and that's obvious if you study this gospel in detail, we still get to see glimpses of the humanity of Jesus in John's gospel. For example, we see his humanity in chapter 4 as he sits tired by Jacob's well. The Greek description there is fascinating. I'll never forget the first time I translate. It's not difficult Greek. John's Greek isn't usually difficult. But the way John phrases that, you could just picture Jesus sitting by this well in a tired fashion. We've all been there, right? We've all been tired and you just sort of plop down. And by your posture, the way you're seated, it's obvious you're tired. That was Jesus in John 4. We see his humanity in chapter 11 as he weeps at the tomb of Lazarus. We see his humanity in chapter 19 as he hangs on the cross and cries out, I thirst. So John does let us see glimpses of the humanity of Jesus, but John's emphasis by far is on the deity of Christ. Notice how he begins his book all the way back in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. These are familiar words to most of you. In the beginning was the word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy from Joseph's side. 
Mark begins his gospel with the ministry of John the baptizer. Luke begins his gospel with his purpose statement. And John begins his gospel with eternity. Jesus is the eternal creator God. Down in verse 14, this one called the Word in verse 1. We are told in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the unique Son of the Father. Look at chapter 5 for a presentation of this. Chapter 5, verse 16. For this reason, that is because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, for this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath but also said that God was his father. Don't miss this last phrase. Making himself equal with God. Some people today, especially the cults, I've had many conversations with people, particularly in the Jehovah's Witness cult, but even among Mormons and other cults, some people today try to say Jesus never claimed to be equal with God. And they will say, show me a statement where Jesus said, I am God. And because you can't find those exact three words, they say Jesus never claimed to be equal with God. Listen, you'd never convince the first century Jews of that. They knew exactly what he was claiming. No doubt in their minds whatsoever. He was claiming to be equal with God. That's why they wanted to kill him. They knew exactly what he was saying. Look at chapter 8 for another example. Chapter 8, right at the end, verse 58. Chapter 8, verse 58. Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That is a claim of deity. In Exodus 3.14, God called himself Yahweh, which in Hebrew is I am. And these Jews knew exactly what Jesus was claiming when he said this. He was claiming equality with God, and that's why verse 59 says, Then they took up stones to throw at him. And don't picture just little pebbles like you might find out in the drive or in the parking lot. Think about Israel. Think about stones, rocks to kill him. They knew what Jesus was claiming. Look at chapter 3. 10 for another example. Chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus said very succinctly, yet very powerfully, I and my Father are one. When Jesus said, I and my Father are one, he didn't, interestingly, he didn't use the masculine term here for one because then he would have been saying the Father and the Son are the same person, but they aren't the same person. They're not one person. They are two distinct persons, but they are one in essence. They are equal. So when Jesus spoke these words, he used the neuter term for one. I and my Father are one in essence. We are co-equal. That's what Jesus was saying, and the crowd again knew it. Verse 31, it says, in response to this, then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. They wanted to kill him because they knew he was claiming equality with the Father. And John records all of these passages so we can see the claims that Jesus made concerning his deity, his person. But there's another way that John presents the majesty of Christ to us. And that is by subtly speaking of the knowledge, 
the infinite knowledge of Jesus. Let me show you a few of these examples. Go back to chapter 2. This one sort of snuck up on me when I was studying the Gospel of John, and I all of a sudden started seeing just a number of these standing out. And I thought, this is, a, this is like a sub-theme of John's Gospel. It's obvious it is because he, he says it so often. Chapter 2, verse 23, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all. Now, my Bible has men, but that's italicized to show that wasn't in the original. He knew all, and he had no need that anyone should, uh, should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. He knew. He knew because of this unique, this infinite knowledge, omniscience, if you want to call it. Look at chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 16. This is Jesus talking to the woman at the well. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. You've had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. How did Jesus know that? How did he know she had five husbands, had five husbands, and the man she was living with was not her husband? Look at chapter 6 for another example. Chapter 6, verse 60. Verse 60 says, Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a, a difficult saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? Well, then, if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. How did Jesus know this? He knew who didn't believe, who did believe, and they all looked the same. The other disciples didn't have that knowledge. They didn't guess Judas. When Jesus made the announcement, one of you will betray me, none of them guessed Judas. They didn't have that knowledge. Look at chapter 11 for another example. Chapter 11. Verse 11. Verse 11, these things Jesus said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. Why would you want to wake him up? He's been really sick. Let him sleep. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. How did Jesus know Lazarus was dead? There's no indication that anyone had come to him, no record. And then look at chapter 13 for another example. This is part of the great upper room discourse recorded by John in chapters 13 through 16. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Look at verse 3. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. Verse 10, Jesus said to them, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. An obvious reference to Judas. He knew. Skip down to verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? 
Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said, Lord, why can I not follow you? Now I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. How did Jesus know? How did Jesus know Peter would deny him three times? I mean, maybe you could say, well, he knew Peter. He knew how Peter vacillated. He knew on this night maybe Peter's going to get in a bind, make a deny. How did he know he would deny him three times? And it would be three times before the rooster crows. This is the, this is the infinite knowledge of Jesus. Look at chapter 18 for another example. This is when Jesus was about to be arrested. Chapter 18, verse 3. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, now watch this comprehensive statement by John, knowing all things that would come upon him. He had this night mapped out in his mind. He knew he would have three religious trials before the Jewish leaders, three judicial trials before the Roman leaders. He knew what the verdict would be. He knew he would be scourged. He knew he was going to be crucified. He knew all things that would come upon him. He knew it all. And what was his response? He went forward, John says, and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, this was sort of Jesus' way of triggering the night to get it started. He has been praying to his Father in the garden, and it's, it's as if Jesus is saying, okay, it's time to get things rolling. He steps forward, knowing all things that would come upon him. He steps forward and said, whom are you seeking? I'm him. Here we go. Only God has the ability to know everything, like John states here, everything that would come upon him. John goes to great lengths to display to us the deity of Jesus Christ. That is clearly the emphasis of John's gospel, far more than in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. John wants to make sure that we understand this man, he was genuinely human. This man was God in human flesh. A few moments ago, I ran through all 21 chapters of John, giving you a title for Jesus that comes from that particular chapter. There's one title I left out that is, in one sense, maybe the most important of all for you personally and for me personally, and that would be the title, Lord and Savior. Maybe make it more specific, personal Lord and Savior. Is Jesus your Lord and and Savior. Have you submitted your life to him? Have you chosen to follow him? Do you believe Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Messiah, the Son of God? Have you believed in him, not just believed about him? Have you believed in him? That picture's placing your faith in him. Have you, as John says in chapter 1, uses the word received, have you received him as your Lord and Savior? If you have to answer no to those questions, you need to do something about it. Commit your life to Jesus Christ today. Hear the message of John's gospel. See his purpose to present the evidence about who Jesus is so you and I will believe in him and that by believing, 
have life in his name. Let's bow together in closing prayer. Oh, Father, what a, what a powerful and glorious picture or pictures we see of the Lord Jesus Christ in this unique gospel. Penned long after the others, so John, obviously, it's so clear that he, he wants to present a different emphasis, a different perspective, a different viewpoint. And indeed, he does that very thing under the inspiration of your Spirit. We are thankful that in your sovereign purposes, you saw fit to include this gospel in Holy Scripture. There are so many things we learn from this gospel, so many aspects unique to this gospel, so many things we would not know about Jesus, we would not know about his ministry, so many things we would not know about his disciples if it were not for this gospel record. So we are grateful. We are thankful. As we heard earlier in some of the quotes we thank you that this gospel is shallow enough for even the smallest little one to wade in, but deep enough for the greatest scholar and the most seasoned saint to swim in, to bathe in, to just be immersed in. Thank you for this unique contribution to your word and the picture it gives us of the Lord Jesus Christ. Such majesty, such grandeur such exaltedness, and may we revel in it as we contemplate what we have seen in this brief but hopefully powerful overview of the book called The Gospel According to John. Thank you for the Lord and Savior it exalts, in whose name we pray. Amen.